0: Um, there's new faces here and some of you guys are probably wondering why is there a different guy here every week Um, because there's three pastors at the door we don't have a lead pastor we have three co-equal pastors Uh, we believe that we the three of us together make one decent pastor like we're better we're better with each other. It's not. It's, it's it's funny, but it's actually not. It's true, really. So, um, so each week, you know, you might see somebody else come come through here. There are some consistence here. There's always like you've always got you know Mike, one of the deacons. You've always got Craig, one of the deacons, and Jacques. They're here every week. Usually, there's at least one or two pastors here uh, every week as well. But anyway, if you've never seen me before and you're wondering, I'm Pastor Brent, and uh, it's really good to to be with you guys today. Okay, so we are going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 19 this morning, if you want to turn over there. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at a parable. Parables are uh, tricky. Um, There's times I like them and there's times I don't when I'm having to prepare and teach them. The ones I like are the ones where Jesus explains what the parable meant. Uh, The ones I don't like as much are the ones where he didn't explain, because then you have to figure out what they mean. This is one that he did not explain. You know, as as we go through this, you're going to see that the parable itself is easy enough to track with. It's it's a pretty simple story, but what takes place in it doesn't seem just or fair. And so this is where it gets challenging. Jesus is going to use a parable to teach us an important truth about his kingdom. And the, the weird thing about it is that it's completely upside down and backwards from what we experience in this world. And so it's a little, you know, hard to track with. Here, the first are the first and the last are the last. But in, in God's realm, that's not the way it works. He's going to tell us, no, no, the first are last and the last are first. And you're, you're thinking, what does that even mean? Well, that's what we're going to get into today. So if you were here last week, you know that Pastor David um, stopped in a kind of a weird spot. Uh, the reason he did that was because if you, don't, if you don't know what comes before this parable, you'll have a hard time understanding. You might come up with some wrong conclusions. So In the previous section, what we saw is Jesus have this encounter with a rich young ruler. This rich young ruler fancied himself as a a really good commandment keeper. Pretty proud of himself and the job he had done. And um, he even made the claim, when Jesus mentioned certain commands, he goes, yeah, I've kept all those perfectly. (laughs) It's like, wow, man, that's great. Good for you. Uh, but Jesus, as David pointed out last week, knows the hearts of man. And so he zeroed in on the bad tooth, as, as David put it, or the, the real issue that was going on here. And, and he told this young ruler that in order to be saved, he needed to sell everything he had and follow Jesus. Now, you and I know that's not the way people get saved. That's not, that's not how it works. But as, as Pastor David pointed out last week, this was Jesus' way of letting this man know Even though he might have thought he was a master commandment keeper, uh, really good at keeping the law, he hadn't even made it past the very first commandment. And so it would kind of go like this, the rich young ruler saying, hey, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus goes, really? Well, hey, hey, just for fun, let's, let's just look at the first one for a second. You shall have no other gods before you. And you can almost picture the guy's mouth drop open and his countenance fall because he realized he hadn't even kept the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before you. And this man had a couple of gods, his wealth and his possessions, and he was not willing to stop worshiping them. He wasn't willing to to walk away from them. And this is why he walked away from Jesus sorrowful that day. And so this, this begs the question for you, is there anything keeping you from being all in with God? Is there anything you're not willing to walk away from or forsake? The truth is that the only thing that I know of that will make us do that is sheer desperation. <laughs> right? It's only when we recognize our hopelessly sinful condition before a holy God that we will be willing to forsake everything else and run to Him. And this is when the gospel becomes very, very good news. Um, we, we come to the end of ourselves. That's when we turn to Him as the answer. And He is ready, willing, and able to save us. He can work with that he can work with a person that says i give up i throws up the white flag and says i need you dane ortland i saw this great quote this week and i thought it was worth repeating he said it's the most counterintuitive aspect of christianity that we are declared right with god not once we begin to get our act together but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will (laughs) i thought that was great and this is, this, is, this is hope for everyone. For the rich young ruler who walked away sorrowful, for you and me today, it's hope. Because as, as the disciples were, you know, they heard that what went down, they saw what went down, and they said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That means his arm is not too short to save anyone. So we start our section today with Peter pointing out to Jesus after this encounter that, that they've done which, what the rich young ruler Uh, wasn't willing to do they have left everything to follow him so in verse 27 Peter said in reply see we have left everything and followed you what then will we have and and this kind of seems like a typical Peter question at first I I like it it's kind of like okay Jesus you know that guy wasn't willing to to leave and forsake everything but but we did that what's in it for us the more I thought about this though the more I didn't see it really as as a selfish or a totally selfish question they had just watched this encounter with Jesus and the rich young ruler go down and they must have thought, okay, he made the wrong choice, but he still walked away rich, right? And maybe, you know, we've decided to follow Jesus, so we've made the right choice, so surely we've got to be better off than him in some way, right? That's what he's thinking. So his line of, of thinking here is reasonable. He's expectant and even anticipating that God has more in store for them, and he's absolutely right. See, this is what we fail to see in this account. Jesus wasn't calling the rich young man away from treasure. He was calling him to true treasure. He was calling him to come and enjoy true riches of knowing God and experiencing God and having a relationship with him, which is better. And as Christians, we can often think that we're the ones missing out. But that's not, that's not true, especially when we factor eternity in, right? That changes everything. So verse 28, Jesus answers Peter's question of what's in it for us. He starts out by saying, truly, I say to you. And anytime you see this, this phrase, truly, I say to you, sometimes your version says truly, truly, or verily, verily. It's like Jesus is doubling down on, on this. This is important. What I'm saying, you can take to the bank. This is, this is something you can, you can have. And so he says, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So he's basically telling them the rich young ruler ain't got nothing on you You 12. You you know, you guys are actually going to go and sit on, you're going to become like rich rulers in my kingdom. You're going to sit on 12 thrones and and it's pretty impressive what he tells them. But it doesn't just involve them. I love that he says, and everyone, everyone who leaves, you know, who, who, who basically leaves everything else to get me is going to be rewarded. They're going to be blessed beyond imagination. I don't know what that means a hundredfold, you know. And then he says, oh, and plus eternal life. You know, a hundredfold and eternal life. Well, that's, that's a lot. Whatever it is, it's, it's, it's definitely pretty exciting to think about. So if you're a Christian who's ever asked yourself, is it worth it? To take up my cross, to die to self, um, to give up all this world has to offer, to follow Jesus—is—is it worth it? Or as Peter puts it, "What's in it for me?" Everything. (laughs) This verse is your answer. It—it's just what you get in Christ is worth more than anything else you can ever imagine, and the payout of it lasts for all eternity. Well, but right about the time, though, that Peter or maybe even us start to become too self-congratulatory or or prideful about this. It's like, check us out. Look what we get. Uh, He reminds them again of the upside down nature of his kingdom where he says, but the first will be last and the last will be first. And we're going to talk more about what that means. To explain this to him, this is where he tells him this parable. And the parable starts in chapter 20 and verse 1. Um, and, and, and I know that these sections were meant to be together. You know, we have these chapter breaks, and so we, we tend to not read, you know, okay, we finished chapter 19, we can forget about that, now we're moving on to 20. Well, he ends chapter 19 with, with this idea of the first will be last and the last will be first. Then he repeats that at the, at, in verse 20, or sorry, verse 16 of chapter 20. He says the same thing again. So he's kind of like these are bookends that he, he's saying this is meant to be understood together. So, um, And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And, when, uh, and then um, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And then when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they were to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or you, do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, this is a good time to point out that parables are descriptive and not prescriptive. So if you're a business owner, don't, don't, you don't read this and think, oh, I'm going to put this into place. This will be a great model to follow for my business. No, you'll go bankrupt. This is a terrible business idea. You're going to have angry employees all day long. So prescriptive, not descriptive. Um, So let's break down the parable. It starts out with the kingdom of heaven is like. So this is telling us something important. It's telling us we're dealing something completely different than what we're used to. We have to think differently about it. This is a different economy, different value system, a different paradigm. And if we're thinking about this in a worldly way, it's going to seem unfair and it's just going to make us upset. So we need to understand that this is meant to challenge and correct our way of thinking. This is kingdom thinking, not worldly thinking. Kind of like the Beatitudes do. You know, when we read the Beatitudes, he's like, hey, the, the, the meek will inherit the earth. And it's like, that's not how it works. It is in God's economy. You know, those who mourn are going to be the ones that are blessed. It's totally upside down and backwards. So we start out with this master of a house who owns a vineyard. The implication is that it's harvest time. And uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And his normal staff that he has isn't going to be enough to to do all the work. So he's got to go out and hire day laborers. Uh, Being a day laborer was not a great way to make a living then, still not really a great way to make a living now, because you never know if there's going to be work that day, what kind of work you're going to do, how much you're going to get paid, any of those things. The one thing you do know is that if I don't work, my family doesn't eat so it's, it's a it's kind of a serious thing um, day laborers kind of held a, a low status in that culture um, slaves and servants at least had steady income had a steady job they knew what they were going to get paid these guys didn't so when the vineyard owner approaches them at the beginning of the workday and offers them a denarius a day's wages to come they would have been thrilled with that offer because that that was what a roman soldier made a denarius was equivalent to what they made it's a good wage uh, probably not as good a wage as they were normally you know, getting. So they, they were probably pretty happy. And it points out that those hired first agreed on the amount. So it's kind of like they, they shook hands, made a contract. Yeah, we agree with that. It's a good wage. We'll do it. They knew what they were getting into. Now, all the other workers in this story, they were just told, whatever is right, I will give you. So it's kind of open-ended. They're hoping that the guy does right by them, but they don't know. There's no agreement there. Now, the workday at that time, which sounds horrible, started at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m. That's, you know, yuck, right? That's the way it was. So the 6 a.m. group gets to work first. After the first three hours passed, the assumption is that the, the landowner looked around, saw that there was a lot more work than the workers, and so he went back to the marketplace and uh, knew that he needed to hire more. And he did this at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., and at 5 p.m., which is just one hour before quitting time. So you want to be in that 5 p.m. group, right? Uh, When he he asked the group, the last group there, standing, um, waiting there, uh, he said, you know, why have you been idle all day in the marketplace? You've stood here 11 hours. Why? And the answer was because no one wanted to hire us. Nobody wanted us. He said, you know what? I want you. and And he pulls them in. And this is where things start to get weird, In the vineyard. (laughs) It was customary according to Old Testament law, you would pay the the workers at the end of the day. Every day you had to pay them at the end of the day because they were relying on that income to feed their families. So imagine you're one of the workers that was hired first. You've worked a full day, 12 hours in the hot, scorching sun. You're beat. And it's time to collect your pay. You line up with all the other workers. The first oddity, I would even say irritation, is I would expect to be paid first. I got here first. I want to get paid first. I want to go home. I want to be with my family. I want to go home, open a, a nice cold root beer because we're Christians, and uh, put my feet up, right? This is what he, he's thinking, I'm sure. Uh, I shouldn't have to wait for everybody else to get paid before I do. But then you see something that looks a little bit promising, right? You see that the, the last group gets paid first instead of the first group, and you're kind of irritated. But then you see that the last group gets paid how much? A denarius, a day's wages. So let's just say a day's wage is $100, is $100. For the whole day. So you're thinking, hot dog, this guy's paying $100 an hour. Like cha ching, we're eating steak and lobster tonight. This is this is pretty exciting, right? But then that excitement slowly changes to confusion and then to irritation and then to rage because you see every group get paid the same thing, including people that are part of your group. They all get $100, they all get one day's wages. So let the grumbling and complaining begin, right? You can hear the cries of, that's not fair, ring out. But the vineyard owner defends himself, saying he has not wronged or cheated anyone. He's been generous and he's honored his agreement. And that he's allowed to do what he chooses with what belongs to him. And this is where Jesus restates the point that the last will be first and the first last. So before we kind of explain, try to explain the parable, let's define the cast of characters real quick so we're all on the same page. The master of the house or the owner of the vineyard is God. The workers are believers who have been invited into his vineyard. The hours of the day could represent like the point in time that, that we become Christians. So the, the first hour would be like you became a Christian as a child and you raised in a Christian home. You've, you've the whole, you know, your whole life you've been devoted to Christ And the 11th hour people could be like somebody who cries out on their deathbed, you know, lived a life terrible, no thought of God, and then at the 11th hour says, save me, and and they're in. That could be that. Uh, Other people think this could represent Jews who were God's people first, and then you've got these Gentiles sneaking in at the 11th hour and and getting all the goods, you know, this kind of an idea. It, It could also just simply refer to the amount of time and effort each of us puts in. So some, some Christians I know, have just they're just so devoted to Christ. They're always serving. They're always at church. They're always they're 12-hour they're, they're Christians, right? And then there's some of us that are like, you know, every once in a while you pick up your Bible and, you know, dust it off, <laughs> you know, read something. You're, you're the last hour kind of Christian. Could be that. The wages, by the way, though, um, they generally just refer to eternal life and, and not necessarily to rewards we may receive in heaven. There are other passages that talk about rewards, potential rewards. I don't think this is one of them. This is just speaking of eternal life. This is the wage earned, not earned, but the wage given. Sorry. We'll get more into that. Uh, okay. So what do we, what do we learn from this parable? What are the big takeaways that we need to see here? Uh, the first one that we're going to look at is that God wants the needy. Second one is comparing is dangerous. The third one is that God is absurdly generous. The fourth one is that there is no place for grumbling in the vineyard. And then the last one is that grace is the great equalizer. So first one is that God wants the needy. I, I love this. You see this landowner seeking out day laborers to come to his vineyard. Now, I already mentioned that they represented the, the less fortunate in that culture. They didn't have steady jobs. They had to continually rely on someone else to supply their needs uh, to survive. So if you were part of this group, it would have been vitally important for you to find somebody to hire you every day or you didn't eat. The landowner goes out uh, hour after hour seeking those who need help, and he's willing to receive anyone who wants it, even at the last hour. Isn't that cool? I mean, you can almost stop there and be like, wow, God's amazing. He Just keeps coming out, keeps finding people, keeps finding people. I want you. I want you. I want you. Now, if you were looking, though, to hire somebody to work with, you went out to the marketplace and, and checked out the, the day laborers for hire that day, uh, who, who would you pick? Well, you're, you're going after the best, right? You want to get your money's worth. You want to get the most work done. So you're, you're looking for the most impressive, the strongest, the most capable, the first, right? The desirables. Who would you avoid hiring, Well, you're not going to hire the weak or the disabled or the people that aren't very smart. You know, the guy that doesn't know how to use a hammer or whatever. You're not going to pick those guys. You're not going to pick the unreliable. You certainly don't want the addicts coming in there, right? Uh, The people with bad reputations. You know, you don't want the, the last. You don't want those guys. They're the undesirables. And that's how we are. We want the first, not the last. And this harkens back to the previous section with the rich young ruler. He seemed like the perfect candidate to be picked by God, and the disciples were shocked that he didn't make the cut. It's like, why wouldn't you want this guy? Why, why, why wouldn't he qualify? And then, and then especially when you consider who Jesus really, you know, who he did pick and who he did choose, he picked the 12. Again, they weren't the cream of the crop. You know, they get 12 thrones, you know, coming up here. But I mean, at that time, they're not impressive. They're the last. But they're the ones that get to sit on these thrones. It's kind of crazy to think about. again, you just get this kind of upside down backwards thing going on. So God not only invites all of these workers into his vineyard, but he also pays them above and beyond what they deserve. God wants the needy, especially the most needy. And I love this about him. He wants the people no one else wants. And he doesn't leave them, leave them out or forget about them. He, he seeks them out. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see, and this one's a, a big deal, is comparing is dangerous. This is where all the drama in the, in the vineyard begins that day. <laughs> right? Everyone was completely happy about their situation until they started comparing themselves to everybody else. So if the people that had worked for 12 hours that day had gotten paid first and didn't even see what the other people would have gotten paid, they would have walked away totally happy that day. If they didn't know what the other people got paid, they'd have been fine. They'd have been just fine. Would they have felt cheated? Nope, No, They would have been on their way feeling good. When we start to compare ourselves to other people, though, this is where the danger begins. Why? Well, lots of reasons. One of the first things that I want to point out is that we don't know the whole story. You know, we we do this comparison thing, but but we're making comparisons based on our own assumptions and the vantage point that we have, and it may not be accurate at all. So, for instance, I I know a lot of you guys might hate social media. I don't like it a whole lot, but if you're ever on it, you, you see this thing play out. Um, If you were to look at the lives of most people on social media, what would your conclusions be? You would conclude that everybody else is living their best life and that your life stinks in comparison to theirs, okay? They have better homes, they have better families, their kids behave, they have way better outings, their meals are superior to your meals, they have better hair days than you. I mean, their life is a life to be envied. That's what we think, but the truth is they just have better filters they run their pictures through and they know how to use Photoshop, you know, not, not really, not exactly, but, but you're not getting the real picture. You, you often see people just pretending they're pretending to be happy and blessed when in reality they're probably insecure. Like we are, they're probably embarrassed about certain things in their life and they don't want anybody to know the truth. So, so they create this false reality the way they wish their lives really were. And, and the sad thing is we get duped by it. We see it and we're jealous about it. Uh, And we're on. Hey! Big applause. Thank you to the crack staff. Appreciate it. All right. They don't get paid. (laughs) They don't even get a day's wage. They just show up and work for free. Okay, sorry. So back to what we're saying. Um, Nobody posts videos that are real. Nobody posts videos of their kid at the grocery store throwing a tantrum because he doesn't get his candy. You don't see that. Nobody posts a picture of the, the spouse fight that you have, you know, where you're yelling at each other and then the door slams and you walk out of the house mad. You're not seeing that. You don't get to see like the pile of dirty dishes growing out of the sink or the mold growing in the shower. Nobody posts that. Uh, Nobody's posting pictures of like the final, you know, late payment notices they're getting from their credit card company or opening up their medicine cabinet and showing you all the meds they're on. Nobody's showing you this stuff. We don't see it. And the truth is, all that's kept behind the curtain and we just get to see the highlight reel, but we're duped by it. It sucks all of the joy out of us, doesn't it? And I'm not immune to this either, by the way, because there are, and I'm not picking on anybody, but there are pastors out there posting pictures about how successful their churches are. And I see this all the time. It's like, wow, that's a lot of baptisms. And that's, you know, they're doing all these great things. And I'm over here just going, man, you know, <laughs> you feel like you're either deflated or, or you're just envious when you see it. The point is that we're assuming things that may not be remotely true about people whose lives may actually be just like ours, or maybe even worse at times. Now, even though we probably realize this, I don't think this is a surprise to any of you, we're still committed to the comparison. We're just... Why do we have to do this? Why must we categorize people into groups like the first and the last and the haves and the have-nots or the the deserving and the undeserving? And at the end of the day, the the, the reason is because it it makes us feel better about ourselves. If we can find somebody that we can put below us, we, we feel better. We generally value people in the world based on two main factors, like what they can do and what they are like. So if you're weak, unskilled, disabled, old, infirmed, like the poor and the powerless, your value is much less than those who are able to contribute and pull their own weight. And we do this also with what people are like. If you're a foreigner, a minority, a child, a woman, a Gentile, a tax collector, or heaven forbid, a sinner, um, you don't deserve the same treatment and blessings that others do. And this is what happened in the vineyard that day. It became a, a comparison you know, uh, situation. And and, and this still happens around us all time today. We categorize people based on the determined worth that we give them. And of course, we always put ourselves in in a high category. You know, we're in the group of the first. We're the good ones for sure. Um, We deserve, you know, plenty of blessings and and goodness from God. and, And, you know, we show ourselves lots of grace and mercy when it comes to this thing. But the problem with the comparison game is that there's always going to be somebody better than you out there. I mean, there's a lot of them, if I'm honest, you know. There's always somebody that's doing a better job, that's following God more closely, that's just contributing more than I am, all that stuff. So you you have this thing where you always have to try to find somebody worse than you if you're playing the comparison game. If you want to feel good about yourself, can't look at those people. They'll just make you feel bad, and you'll get envious. So you better find some people that aren't doing so good. The good news is we always have the thief on the cross, right? That guy didn't do nothing, (laughs) Like, he just, at the last hour, he said, hey, can I be where you are? And Jesus said, sure, you're in. So, you know, I'm doing better than him. At least, you know, but he only had, what, a few minutes to work with? But still, we've always got the thief. So Um, it's kind of a gross reality when we think about these comparisons where we convince ourselves that we're better, deserve more, uh, we're owed more even. And, And when you think this way, you're setting yourself up for a really miserable existence. Um, I remember we joke about this um, when our kids were little, it was Christmas morning, uh, the boys were opening their presents, and uh, my youngest son watched his older brother open some presents, and, and at one point, he's got all these presents all around him, he's having a great time, but he sees what his brother opens, and he said, I wanted that more, and, and, and all of a sudden, everything that was happy and good just disappeared, and all he could think about was, I want that, and I deserve that, and I want it more than him, and I should have it. It it robbed him of all of his joy in a moment. Comparison creates bitterness, bitterness creates resentment, and resentment creates grumbling. Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy, and he was absolutely right. Now, if you must compare yourself, if you're just committed to the comparison, uh, I've got two ways you can do it. That'll be okay. Uh, First one is this, compare yourself to Jesus. (laughs) You want to compare yourself to somebody? He's the standard. Compare yourself to him. Now what do you deserve? (laughs) It's like, well, that didn't work. I mean, making that comparison quickly replaces ugly envy with great humility, right? If you still feel the need to compare, I would say compare yourself to the less fortunate. It's amazing what this does to your perspective on things. I remember one time we took a, a youth group to Mexico. And we had to go out with the kids to the neighborhoods in the hills, the far, away, kind of outside of town aways, and hand flyers to them for a VBS that we were doing that day. And I remember walking around and thinking, well, that can't be a house. I mean, that at best looks like a shed, and it doesn't even look like a shed. Like, my shed is nice, and this is, it was weird. And you'd walk around the corner and look in there, and there's a whole family in there with a kitchen. I mean, they're just like cardboard and metal and whatever. The walls weren't even walls. The floor was dirt. And what I noticed, though, and what the kids that were with us noticed on that trip was these people were happy. I mean, the kids were playing in the street. They were kicking cans around there. They were happy. They were happy when we came into VBS for them. They were grateful. And I just remember thinking perspective is everything. I, I remember this Helen Keller quote kills me every time I read it. I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's like perspective <laughs> changes everything. We always do that thing where people you, you talk, you know, hey, how you doing? Better than I deserve. We say that tongue-in-cheek, but no, that's true. That is real. You are doing better than you deserve. So we need to learn as the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book with this title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's rare. You don't find it very often, but when you find it, it's a beautiful thing because contentedness creates peace and satisfaction and praise. It allows you to be happy for the person that receives blessing when you don't. Can you do that? You know, think about the, Jesus, the, the people that Jesus did the most for. It was the outcast, the marginalized, the broken, the unwanted, the last. Aren't you glad that God loves the unwanted and the unlovable? You, you should be because whether you like it or not, that includes you, you know, that includes me. So the question this parable begs us to consider is how do we respond when someone receives a blessing from God that you didn't receive and who, in your estimation, doesn't deserve it? Are you happy for them or is there something inside of you crying out, that's not fair? Stop comparing, learn to be grateful and content with what you have because it's so much more than you deserve. Okay, the next one is this, God is absurdly generous. I don't like the word to use absurd next to God, but he is absurdly generous. Every one of us is in need of God's generosity. And the good news, he's willing to meet that need beyond our wildest expectations. Now, keeping in mind that God doesn't, he's not obligated to be generous. He doesn't owe us anything. Um, You know, even, even still, though, there's something that seems wrong to us about the way things went down in the vineyard that day. Our sense of justice says that somebody who toiled for 12 hours in the scorching sun should get more than the one who came in for 60 minutes in the cool of the evening and worked. Right? But here's the thing. Did the landowner do wrong? He didn't. Did he cheat anyone? No. Was he unjust in any way? Not at all. He didn't owe anyone more than what he gave. And, and this is the point. God is not indebted to anyone every good thing he does for us is an act of generosity and grace, including the very next breath you take. You realize that? The next breath you take is a mercy from God. It's true. So God is allowed to do whatever he chooses with what belongs to him. And according to Psalm 24, here's what belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. It reminds me of that great quote by Abraham Kuyper that says, uh, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> like, and it's not like he's being a kid, you know? Like, like kids say that all the time, you know? But, but he, he has the right to say this. I have learned to take great comfort in the fact that God's actions are right simply because they're God's actions, okay? That's a hard thing, but I take comfort in it now. He is holy. He is incapable of wrongdoing. He's incapable of injustice. So whenever I don't understand what he's doing, I need to trust him. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will have compassion on whom he has compassion, and he is perfectly right to do so. So let me ask you this. Is salvation a gift received or a payment earned? It's, It's a gift received. So here's, here's, here's what it comes down to. God doesn't owe us salvation for something we have done. He gives us salvation despite everything we have done. That's amazing. It's a good deal. What a generous God. So a God who owes us nothing has given us everything in Christ. We should be the most grateful people on the planet. We need to remember that next time we want to cry out, that's not fair, or I'm not getting what I deserve. <laughs> Praise God He doesn't give us what we truly deserve. Amen? Yeah. So we need to acknowledge how incredible it is that God has invited us into His vineyard at all. And that brings us to the next one. There is no place for grumbling in the vineyard. You know, God was repeatedly and consistently good to the people of Israel, and Israel were repeatedly and consistently good at complaining about everything He did. You notice that? And the the sad truth is that we're not a whole lot different as his people now. And I, I, you know, this is the thing. It's such a slap in the face of God when we grumble. I, I came to this realization one day that every time I grumble and complain about my circumstances, I'm really just bad-mouthing God. <laughs> I'm telling people that my Heavenly Father is doing a lousy job of taking care of me. It's just sad to think of it, but it's, it's true. And when I realized that, I thought, I need to, I need to stop doing this. Imagine your own kids doing this, you know, when they were little and as a parent, if they just went around everywhere they went, just going, man, my parents stink. You know, they don't even feed me good. They don't clothe me well. I don't, they're not very, they hardly even take care of me at all. You would feel so lousy about that as a parent. And we do it to our heavenly father all the time. And he's perfect, right? So grumbling is, is definitely a sin that is a big deal to God, but it's one that we, we act like isn't a very big deal at all. It's much worse than we think it is. So what do we do instead? What's the opposite of grumbling and begrudgery? It's a word you don't get to say very often. So. Begrudgery. The opposite would be proclaiming His wonderful works. It would be praising His name. It would be being thankful and content. So if God has been good to you, shout it from the mountaintops to everyone who will listen to you. Brag about your heavenly Father. Brag about your wonderful Savior and what He's done for you to everybody who will listen. So the last point in this is that grace is the great equalizer. The first will be last and the last first. It's a really kind of a, it's a weird statement to think about. I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks now, and it was kind of tweaking my brain. But this has, has to do with the way we view and evaluate people, right? We, we, we say this person is, is first because of these things, and this person is last. And, and what God's kingdom does. It, it's almost like, you know, sometimes when you shine a light through a prism, it, it, it changes the way everything looks. I feel like this is what this is. It's like we see the first and the last so clearly, and, and we have God, you know, in his kingdom. All of a sudden, he takes these things and goes, and now all of a sudden, we're seeing them in a totally different way. Like this, this doesn't make sense, but, but it's the reality. God takes this incorrect perspective we have, and he fixes it. So it's not about the amount of work we do, or the amount of worth we have that determines what God gives us, it's his grace alone. If we all got what we deserve, none of us would go to heaven. If, if, if grace is the, the difference maker, apart from it, we'd all be doomed. The best of us, the worst of us. That's, that's the reality. So John MacArthur had a really good illustration that helped me with this. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it, but he was talking about when we run races. Say you have 10 people running a race. Um, how can you have a race run with 10 people where people finish first and last? The only way to do that is if everybody crosses the finish line at the same time. So that, you know, otherwise the first or first and the last are last. But if everybody is the first and the last at the same time, that's the only way it makes sense. And I think this is what Jesus is saying here. We all finish the same because of him, not because of us. Do we deserve to finish the same? no. But because of His amazing grace and generosity and goodness, we all finish the same. We all inherit eternal life. It's amazing. Have you left everything to follow Jesus? You won't be disappointed if you do. When we line up at the end of the day to collect our pay, we get eternal life and a hundredfold to boot whatever that ends up being. But until that day comes, don't fall into the trap of comparison because it will steal your joy and it will cause you to grumble against your amazing God. Trust that God knows what's best, that He's working out His plan and purposes through what He does, even when it seems like it's not fair or just. We don't know how He works. I don't understand these things. I really don't. I don't know why some have a lot and some have a little. But I know that as a good father, He knows what's good for His children. He knows that some of us can handle riches and some of us it would destroy, right? Most of us are daily bread people. We have what we need, and that's good. If we had more, we'd forget him. If we had less, we'd be tempted to steal. That's what the proverb writer said. I don't know why God blesses one person and lets another go through devastating things. I don't know why I was born in this country, and another Christian was born in China or North Korea and is scared right now because they're following Christ. And I'm over here just living my, you know, it's like I don't know why these things are the way they are. Is it because I deserve it? Certainly not. Is it because... They deserve to, to go through more hardships? No, that's not it. Our God loves us, and he's gone to great lengths to make sure that no one gets forgotten, no one gets left behind. We're all taken care of. We're all provided for, provided for, regardless of how smart we are, how skilled we are, how strong we are, how popular we are, any of that. So when you ask the question, what's in it for us? I love this verse we'll end on before we take communion. It's 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. A crown of righteousness, which means our standing before God is holy and blameless, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. This is the point of the cross. This is the good news for believers. His body was broken instead of yours and His blood was shed instead of yours. And He's willing to offer His righteousness to you as a gift if you will turn to Him in repentance, confessing that He is Lord and believing that God raised Him from the dead. That's a a good exchange right there. If you've never done this, today can be the day you do that. This table is set for Christians. If today is the day you want to bow before Him, and cry out to him as Lord, it can be that day. Father, thank you so much that we, we have this reminder of who Jesus is and what he has done for the likes of us. Thank you for inviting us into your vineyard. Thank you for paying us an unbelievable wage in eternal life. Lord, we know we don't deserve it. We know we could never earn it. And we know it came at the cost of your son. So as we take communion now, we pray, Lord, that we would be grateful, that we would be mindful that when we complain, we're, we're bad-mouthing you, and, and that's not right. You are so good to us, Lord. We're in awe of who you are. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to tell others who you are and what you've done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.